Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. On a Monday, the 9th of January, David Gura and Tom Keene in London today. Neither snow in New York nor a strike on the underground could keep us away, and we had both. Prime Minister Theresa May says yesterday that the Brexit process is not muddled, and that leaving the European Union is about getting the right relationship, her words, not about keeping bits of membership. The latest on Brexit with Baroness Helena Kennedy, the Baroness Kennedy of the Shaws, member of the House of Lords, markets perspective from Alberto Gallo and Roger Boodle of Capital Economics. And we'll also talk with Harvard economist Ed Glazer about uh, fiscal policy, the prospects for big infrastructure spending coming out of Washington, D.C. Uh, but first, Baroness Helena Kennedy, chair of the House of Lords European Union Committee, principal of Oxford's Mansfield College, joins us here uh, in London. Great to see you again. Great to see you in London. Nice to see you. Let's, let's start by talking about that interview uh, yesterday, Theresa May sitting down and, and talking about um, getting that relationship right. Do you have a clearer sense of, of what that relationship is going to look like would be? I, I certainly don't. And, and, of course, her statement yesterday was to deal with all the criticism yes. that there's a muddle. And that's coming from uh, you know, many different quarters. And, of course, we've just had this sort of scandal of, uh, of the sacking of um, her European um, uh, uh, advisor. And, um, and so... Th- and his replacement. And so there's been a, a, a serious, you know, assault upon uh, those who are involved in um, sort of preparation for negotiation mm. and and saying how muddled all of this is. And, and that's the sense that many people get. Um, and certainly um, on the European Union Select Committee, um, we've been taking lots of evidence um, around different issues that are going to, um, we want to be fed into the negotiation. And so far we've had very little feedback um, from the centre and from Downing Street as to where they're going to be taking this. Now, she's quite right not to want to drip feed everything that's going to be on the negotiation table. Um, I chaired and and gave gave out a report on the business of protecting the rights of um, European Union citizens living here and British uh, citizens living in other parts of Europe, that that should be dealt with even before we get into negotiation, that we should take the initiative and actually protect the rights of, of those who are already here. And by taking that sort of moral high ground, um, other countries would would step up to the plate and do the same thing, and it would win us good goodwill in the negotiation. So I think that we've been rather slow off the mark on that, and people have been disappointed. Um, other things, um, I think, it's very interesting. I mean, there's no doubt that people have been rather pleased to see that some of the the horrors that were um, promised by George Osborne and uh, and David Cameron, you know, that it was all going to be collapsed, and that immediately people were going to feel the impact of this. And in fact, economically, it is not. Been, that's not been the picture over the last six months. Um, and, and that has been giving reassurance to certain people. And lots of people that I know who were Remainers have started sort of reconciling themselves to the mm. fact that this is, the, this, you it's know, where it's going to happen. It was like grief. You had to go through all the processes of, of not believing it, thinking there was some, you know, nifty way of getting around it and so on. And then it became the argument between hard and soft Brexit, you know, whether it was going to be, you know, cut and run or whether it was going to be, a, you know, a much, a much, you know, closer to what sure. we were already doing. And I think that I mean, I, I always go back to the fact that if, if 48% wanted to remain and 52 to leave, yes, it means you leave, but you have to take account of the 48%, and therefore I would have found, thought that finding some real way in the middle and, and compromising was what, what Theresa May is going to have to try to do. You mentioned citizens of the European Union living here uh, in the UK. How precarious a position are they, they in right now? You, well, you express the need for some urgency dealing with their situation. Are they telling you they need that? We've been inundated with um, uh, correspondence 
questions from people really fearful of their position, um, partly because, um, for example, there are things they didn't know. They didn't know that, that for some of them, if, at times when they're not working, they're supposed to have private insurance and not be using the National Health mm. Service. And so th that will, will uh, be a detriment to their getting um, uh, residency in the ordinary, ordinary way, even if they've lived here more than five years. I think that the government's got to create something new and say for people in this category, they don't have to go f through the normal procedures. We're going to create a new one, a simple one, and we're going to make it very easy for you to acquire the right to remain with all the citizens' um, entitlements that go with it. From a, a policy perspective here, what seems to be the, the biggest overarching issue that this government is, is dealing with? Is it trade? Is it immigration? Uh, is well, it the economy writ large? It, uh, the way that Theresa May seems to be reading it is that it's about immigration, yeah. that she's read that the electorate's uh, um, uh, impulse was about feeling that jobs are being taken away, that the future of their children is being affected by too many people being able to come here to work. Now, then, of course, there are all those people who actually rely on uh, Romanian workers and so on. The National Health Service mm. is absolutely peopled with, with doctors and nurses and people from the rest of Europe who, uh, you know, and it wouldn't function without them. And so you have to remind people that there are benefits in all of this too. But the strong sense that people have, I mean, particularly working class people up in, uh, you know, in the north and, and in, you know, far away from the metropolis, mm. is that actually, you know, what's going to happen to our kids? What's the future for them? And so um, it, it's, it's very easy to Pleasure. make it about immigration. Let's continue this discussion. Helena Kennedy with us this morning. And David Gurr and Tom Keene from London, both of us here all week. David, great to have you here. Nice to be here. Yeah. Uh, joining us uh, as we, we do more and more, particularly the excitement of a, a new Bloomberg headquarters down by Mansion House. We'll see that, I, I believe, later this year. Like, they even have desks. They're, they're really getting to work. The desks have they been brought in. It. Yeah, I'm eager they've to got see the, it this week. They've got the helicopter pad for the <laughs> surveillance of Korsky <laughs> and to get from Heathrow quickly. It, it looks so good. Helena Kennedy with us in the House of Lords and uh, uh, so much to do as with a labor and a liberal voice within uh, the United Kingdom. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of Wales voted for Brexit, even though Wales gets a lot of support at present from EU budgeting and finance in that. So if you were having a beverage of your choice at a pub in northern Wales that you know better than me, and three guys sat across the table and said, Baroness, with due respect, you're wrong, how do you speak to the other side within the United Kingdom, just flat out afraid of those migrants? Um, I, I mean, I, I think that you have to actually engage with the fact that um, First of all, we do have illegals here in Britain and, uh, and that governments are going to have to deal with that. I think that you have to remind people how we need um, workers to come and uh, who've got skills, like we need more doctors and you can't do that overnight. So if you cut off uh, that supply, you'd be in serious trouble. And once you start having to do the whole uh, visa application process to get them to come in, then that's very time consuming and we may find real gaps in the provision of something that people find very precious in their lives, which is the existence of the National Health Service. But the other things like that are going to be affected. Long, the, the care of the elderly. Many of the people who are looking after our elderly are, in fact, immigrants. And so, I mean, you really do have to remind people um, of, of the ways in which having immigrants come into the country and also reminding people that we actually have a shortfall between um, the age of, you know, of our citizenry. A large number of them are older and are going to have real needs as they go in, you live longer, and that we don't have enough young people paying tax and so on within uh, the current population. So, um, but we also have to address the fact that there are people who are fearful for their children and for the jobs that their children might do, particularly people who are living in what were the industrialised mm. areas of Britain. And we didn't ever invest adequately in, in, in you know, putting things in, in place of mining, steelworking, shipbuilding, mm. docking, all that stuff. It's my sense uh, visiting here that the conversation about this is very robust and seems to be happening after the vote took place. Is it a civil conversation about the, the future of the UK and, and uh, its relationship with the EU? How would you uh, assess the, the quality of the, the, the robustness of that conversation? Well, I, I, I have a slight anxiety because I think that it's, it, it sometimes it becomes much more vitriolic mm. than, than has been normal in, in um, political adversarial discussion. Um, it's, become, it's turned nasty at times. I mean, we had this business, and I say this as a lawyer, of course, mm. but you know, where suddenly 
um, our judges were being called enemies of the people because of making a decision that was about saying, actually, this is a constitutional issue and uh, and actually triggering um, Article you know, 50 should be done by, um, mm -hmm. by Parliament. You know, the judges were just doing their job of looking at what were the legal issues there, and we've now got the Supreme Court about to do the same, but they were absolutely excoriated in the ugliest way, and and by politicians, some of the politicians on on the sort of hard right who are are, are Brexiteers. Mm -hmm. So that was that that is that is not the normal kind of way of having a discourse in Britain, and I and I hope we can pull it back because I think we do need to have a better conversation, and people are more likely to listen to mm -hmm. concerns about what are the job implications, the well, the investment implications, and so on in the long term, where the problems might be, how we might get a better result, um, having a better conversation. And I think that at the moment it's well, rather coarse. You have to leave it there, Lady Kennedy. Thank Sorry. you so much. We look forward to speaking to you again as well. I just got an email from Anthony from Sparta who uh -huh. says, when I come to London, I start talking like I have a British accent. <laughs> it's, I, you, you know, it's, it's Everybody does that. They you come from America quickly. and it's like it's like a bad Walt Disney movie. Get off movie. the plane and there you go. You yeah. start talking with a British accent. I shouldn't <laughs> do that. Alberto Gallo doesn't have a British accent. It's Italian. There you go. He's one of our really most valued guests, Alberto Gallo, uh, with Algebras uh, this morning. And, you know, we look back to your courage to go long Southern Europe years ago in the depths of the world's coming to an end. Where are you long right now? Or is the Trump reflation so distorted the Albert Gallo world? We are long inflation in Europe. Uh, in the Eurozone. We have been since last year and you know this was when everyone expected the Eurozone to stay in a permanent deflation state like Japan. Uh, things have changed. You know there's stimulus in the US, there's populism and populism globally is reflationary. Uh, and we are also very short uh, on uh, some government bond markets, particularly gilts, the UK, which is uh, going to issue a lot more bonds and has a way high inflation rate, and also France, which uh, has a very challenging election ahead. Do you double barrel your caution on gilts on the fixed income paper, full faith and credit paper of the United Kingdom? You're betting price down yield higher. Do you double barrel that with a weak sterling as well? Yeah, I think the sterling has a shorter horizon. Um, you know, the FX market could panic again as we go into triggering Article 50 without a real plan because it's clear that there is no plan. Theresa May wasn't even able to tell the Queen about it. So um, for, for guilt, I think the time horizon is a little bit longer because you need to see the pass-through of a weak sterling into inflation, into food prices, which are 10% of inflation and other import prices. Remember, the UK imports around half of the goods that it consumes, uh, and in case of food, is even more than half. So the weaker sterling will, you know, will go down, probably will stay lower, uh, especially versus the dollar, and then you'll see the pass-through into, into gilts. Now, in between these two things is the Bank of England. The mm -hmm. Bank of England has depleted ammunition. They have only 6% FX reserves, and they have let people leverage up close to the highs of 2006-2007. So if the average British family has uh, the same level of debt as pre-crisis, it means the Bank of England cannot hike rates. So defending the currency is very hard. Fighting against inflation is very hard. How do you factor inequality into all of this? There was a standout line in your most recent note. You said even as QE infinity fades, the rise in inequality continues to provide fertile ground for politics of, of rage. We've seen it. Do you expect it to continue, get worse? What's your forecast for it? Well, Brexit has divided the UK, but my, um, my thinking has been for many years that the UK was a divided kingdom already before that because of the imbalanced growth model that it has developed over, over the last three decades. So based on finance, based on London, uh, very unequal geographically between the south and the north and also across society. So you have 0.7% of the population here, which is privately educated uh, and has 70% of all the jobs in, uh, in, in the judiciary, in journalism, even rugby players. So uh, and, and MPs in, in Parliament, of course. Um, so uh, you need uh, inclusive growth. You need to create opportunities for everyone. And it, and it starts with education. It, 
it's not about benefits. It's not about uh, giving a one-off tax cut. So it's a very tough job for one government to do. It's much easier to, to blame foreigners, uh, try to unify people that way, but it doesn't work. Now, inequality is key. This is the year of um, where, where the politics of populism are not a slogan anymore. They actually become economic policy, mm -hmm. and they're going to make real damage potentially in some cases. You know, the UK is one of these cases. Very quickly here, for, for a bond investor looking at the US, what does he or she do in this interregnum as we wait to see what Congress will do in terms of fiscal spending or, or tax reform? Uh, what's, what's the play at this point? In the US, you know, I'll, first, the, 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 the politics of, uh, of spending, of, um, of populism are a bit more positive, at least domestically, because there is infrastructure investment. Uh, and there are some tax cuts which are less important for, for, for growth, but, uh, but infrastructure investment is very, is very positive. And we have been waiting for this for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. During the Obama administration, it was very hard to do anything. Uh, so um, I, I think uh, a lot of it is priced in. So the risk is that the um, spending plan may be delayed. Uh, and you know, U.S. Treasuries are one of the few bonds that give you, gives you the same amount of yield as inflation. So you know, when the spending plan no. has a hiccup, then people could buy Treasuries. So you know, it's very no. well priced. Alberto Gallo, thank you so much yeah. for your perspective. It's been very valuable. He is with Algebris all week. In London, David Gurr and Tom Keen worldwide. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member. SIPC. Uh, I turned to the tape this morning. London is not looking at the tape. They are looking at a good old all-American, all-British 1970s strike. David, it's, it's something to make a joke about. But there's no joke. It's a big deal. Yeah. And uh, people saying that uh, it's making things difficult today. Uh, as I said, walking the streets, you sense that they're more packed than perhaps they would be otherwise. And uh, it, it was something to see. Cues. Sort of now cues. Excuse me. They have cues. Cues, yeah. Uh, the bus cues are the substantial. Buses, the bus cues are substantial here. Yeah. Uh, and I heard the mayor of London on the radio this morning saying he condemns the strike uh, in particular. Uh, Sadiq Khan saying that he has you know, tried through the weekend to resolve uh, issues with this particular union, was unable to do that. Uh, and he... Uh, understandably upset with the, the strikes here in London today. You wonder where it will be through the year, and you wonder if it comes over to the United States. We supposedly have a better economy, but a lot of Americans don't agree with that. There's been some wage inflation. The headline Friday was wage growth like 2009, but there's a but. But <laughs> Exactly. Uh, and we were talking really just about the, the culture of striking here. Mm. And we'll see if we get that in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, as well. Ed Glazer joins us now. He is the uh, uh, Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics at Harvard University, uh, joining us now uh, by phones. Ed Glazer, great to speak with you. You have written about, focused so much on infrastructure spending. We are at a moment, uh, dare I say, in the U.S. where uh, this conversation has come to the fore here. I was looking back on what you wrote over the summer when it was Bernie Sanders, uh, the senator from Vermont, who was talking about this in detail. What do you make of the, the change here, uh, the Republican embrace here, uh, it seems, I, I won't say the whole party, most of the party here, embracing the idea of a big fiscal a stimulus package? It's fascinating, isn't it? Um, but, of course, there are Republican roots in this. I mean, it was Eisenhower, of course, who gave us the highway system. And in some sense, the push towards infrastructure is just the fact that we need to do something to make America great again. Uh, and in an absence of plausible alternatives, infrastructure comes to the fore. There's a Pavlovian response there from Ed Glazer there, the Make America Great Again <laughs> response. Let me, let me ask you here just about, uh, is there a continuum here from what we've heard from central bankers over the last year or so calling for more fiscal spending? Do you see this as a response to that, or did this come out of something in, uh, else entirely? I think it only partially reflects that. I think it really does reflect a larger sense that, you know, we've got to do something and infrastructure is it. And I think it's very dangerous, quite honestly, because, in fact, the right way to do infrastructure is to focus on the microeconomics of it, not the macroeconomics of it. When we start thinking that infrastructure is the solution to all of our problems, we get things like Detroit's people move or monorail, right? We get bridges to nowhere. When we focus on will this actually <clears throat> reduce travel times for enough people to justify the cost, then we get sensible investments. 
You mentioned focusing on the micro issues, and, and I wonder here, if that's the case, why haven't we seen more movement on it exclusive of uh, Washington taking the, the initiative? Why don't we see more municipalities and states trying to, to venture forward on this? Oh, we have, actually. There was a, a remarkable spate of local initiatives for infrastructure spending during the last election cycle. Um, but you are right in that in the you know, since World War II, uh, we've had a norm in which we think Washington pays for infrastructure, and consequently, localities have underdeveloped their own willingness and ability to take the lead on infrastructure. And it's deeply unhealthy. I mean, the best infrastructure occurs when users pay, not when taxpayers 400 miles away pay. Yeah. Ed, what's interesting, and I congratulate you on the panel you have at Brookings uh, with uh, Secretary Summers. But among other there is Clifford Winston, who I've interviewed every no, any number of times about how our government spends money. Within the pol- politics of infrastructure, frame for us what Democratic Party infrastructure is and what Republican Party infrastructure is. To me, and I think to all our listeners, we're a little unclear on that distinction. What is the distinction? So... It's not uh, – I, I, I congratulate your uh, listeners on their lack of clarity, as, as indeed <laughs> that lack of clarity is appropriate. But uh, if you wanted to draw a broad stereotype, it's, it's the Democratic infrastructure is more just directly paid for by Washington, maybe through the help of some expert-dominated uh, infrastructure bank, whereas uh, the Republican approach is more through the use of tax credits to subsidize public-private partnerships. Um, both approaches have their have their flaws and both have their merits. When, you, when you're listening to lawmakers now, when you're, you're looking for contours to this plan, what's most important? What are you looking to, to hear from them? Um, I think if we are going to see a massive trillion-dollar tax credit plan being pushed forward, the big issue is how are we going to put checks on that to avoid its abuse? How are we going to make sure this isn't going to be a boondoggle for particularly connected uh, private contractors? Um, if we are moving towards something that looks more like a democratic plan, the question is how in the world are you going to make sure that this is actually targeted towards infrastructure that people actually value? Um, the big virtue of the Republican plan is that pretty much if you have a public-private partnership, there's got to be some attention to back-end revenues, some attention to users who will actually uh, take the take the roads at some point in time, and that's, that's really valuable. Um, on the other hand, if you have the, the government paying for 85 percent of the equity stake through tax credits, the potential for abuse is enormous, so you need to pay attention to check that. Yeah, I remember reading Alan Kruger's piece, I think, in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks back, and he was critical of the, the sort of establishment of a private, private-public partnership in that way because of the, the tax benefits. How difficult will it be to, to police that, do you think? Uh, not impossible. Actually, Eduardo Engel uh, of Yale and uh, uh, Chile is actually the, the great expert on public-private partnerships globally. In some places like Chile, they work very well. In some places like Sub-Saharan Africa, they don't. And the question don't, is, yeah. where does the U.S. fit on the extreme <laughs> on that? On that uh, um, uh, and again, PPPs are going to be good when you want to think, let's say we imagine an, a dedicated lane for autonomous vehicles. That's right. a perfect place to think about PPPs working. Okay. If you want to think about repaving our roads in, in downtown Washington, D.C., it's hard to imagine how a PPP is going to be any use in that. Okay. Ed Glazier, you lived, as frankly some of us did, good morning, Bloomberg 1200 Boston, the mother of all infrastructure projects, the big dig. Now, you mentioned that Republicans do this, Democrats do that. What happened with just all-American bonds to pay out 20, 30, 40, 50 years of debt for a project that benefits? I mean, we can all, I think we can all say the Big Dig clearly benefited people driving with four wheels down the road. What did you learn about the debt experience of the Big Dig that we can apply today? Well, so one of the one of the lessons of the Big Dig is that the Big Dig really was sold, you know, by by its supporters with the promise of being paid for overwhelmingly with federal bucks. Now, there certainly was federal subsidy, probably even more federal subsidy than I than I would have liked, but overwhelmingly the Big Dig was actually paid for with Massachusetts funding. But it, it you know it was the federal funding that caused the the you know the local decision making to get skewed on this. So I think it's a it's a lesson about how having less federal funding actually could potentially make local decision making. Better. The second lesson of the big dig is so much attention uh, was paid towards not disturbing anyone. There was not a single eminent domain 
uh, case right? used against residences there. Now, you know, I understand why we did that. We did too much in terms of eminent domain in the immediate post-war period, but the cost of making sure that not a single person is disturbed might be might be just too high. Um, and the third lesson, again, is just, you know, ruthless attention towards cost-benefit analysis when doing these things, really. You can't just get involved in some, you know, big story about how you're going to do the big dig and it's going to bring everything back. You've really got to add up whether or not the number of people who benefit from this are really going to be, you know, uh, going to make up the cost. And are there other cheaper options, like, say, moving the, the airport in Boston, which would have been a much more cost-effective uh, uh, cost means of, of saving transportation time? We're going to come back with you here in a moment, but let me just ask you quickly how useful it is to look back on the stimulus package of 2008-2009. I mean, what's being proposed here is a much larger package than that. It is. Um, and to the extent to which this is actually going to be targeted towards things that users value, I think that's okay. Uh, to the extent to which it's just going to be one big fiscal bonanza, it's dangerous. So I think we have to see how it evolves. And those of us who hope for the best need to continue pushing to make sure this is actually not being done with the idea that it's going to you know, ratchet up America's growth yeah. rate, which who knows if it'll ever do, do that or not, um, make sure that it actually focuses on, you, on real service delivery. Do you see, folks, how fancy professors from Harvard can just glibly say, well, we could move the airport? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, first of all, if you're going to move Logan, where are you going to put it? I mean, would be another question. We're going to continue with Ed Glazier. Maybe we'll move, I don't know, move JFK somewhere. That'll, that'll create some infrastructure. From London this entire week, David Gurr and Tom Keene. We've invaded London. It's a London with a really significant one-day strike of their subway system, the tube. Uh, millions stranded and, and with some real hardship, including getting guests to Bloomberg. We've been, our staff has been dealing with that all morning. But we are here and we say uh, good morning on economics, finance, and international uh, relations. Uh, David, uh, we, we need to do a massive shout out to British Airways. They delivered the goods on Saturday. You and I were we were waving at each other we were on the from plane to plane tarmac. across the tarmac. Uh, the, but they de-iced your plane first, then they mine, de-iced and we the plane. caught up with each other here. I thought it was great how they used Plymouth Gin to de-ice. <laughs> I thought that was just absolutely, <laughs> you know, a pretty good British yeah. Gin to de-ice. I like how they did that. But a massive shout-out to British Air that got us here uh, in one piece, along with our executive producer, Rachel uh, Worspan. We say uh, good morning again from London. And, of course, we begin two weeks on the road to Davos and the World Economic Forum as well. And there's too much to talk about. David, why don't you bring in our steam guest is truly an expert on i can't think of a topic with more amateurs babbling uh-huh. including me than infrastructure <laughs> ed glazer uh, economics professor at harvard with us on the line here uh, as he prepares for a brookings institution event on the prospect for uh, infrastructure spending later today uh, in washington dc we were talking about that 2008 2009 stimulus package that was one of course pushed through uh, as a result of the moment, there was, there was a perceived need to do something after the financial crisis. This is something different entirely. We don't have that uh, crisis in the backdrop. Does that make it easier or harder to prepare a package like this one? Well, it's harder to get it through, but easier to actually plan for it sensibly, right? It's very, very hard to do infrastructure quickly and wisely, and the push to get the money out of the door quickly certainly made it harder to be wise in 2008, 2009. If, if, if I'm a school in need uh, and the, the package that's developed here involves a public-private partnership, how do you, how do you get people to invest in things where the, where the cost-benefit is not immediately apparent, uh, when something needs to be improved or bettered, uh, but you're not going to get a great bang for your buck, at least not in the short term? Well, that's, that's where you actually do need federal spending, I mean, or, or at least local spending. I mean, in some cases, things that are not going to yield revenues can be paid for by local property taxes, right? So one of my favorite funding models for infrastructure is Hong Kong Mass Transit, where they keep fares low, but they also are real estate developers who build skyscrapers atop the new subway stops. So there are ways of, of essentially back-ending the revenue that, that really works. And I think, actually, you mentioned British Airways. One of the most striking differences is in airport quality is the sort of divergence between JFK and Heathrow. And it's hard not to think that Margaret Thatcher's decision to privatize the British airports in the 1980s had something to do with that. You know, when you talk about that that Hong Kong project, I'm struck by how creative that is. Uh, And I wonder what's going to catalyze or kickstart more creativity when it comes to infrastructure spending in the U.S.? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, uh, the role of the private sector to do creative things is, is unparalleled. And, you know, when you think about all this talk about, about uh, federal infrastructure spending, uh, 15 years ago, it was hard not to think the most creative thing that was going on was the, the dollar buses that were plying between Boston, New York, and Washington, totally free enterprise, uh, providing cheap transit for ordinary people. So I think a, a private model has attractive attributes, but it's not going to handle everything. It's not right. going to handle your school that needs fixing. It's not, it's not going to handle a Potholes, and let's not forget, private enterprise can also be creative in figuring out how to game whatever system that's put in well, place and take advantage of it. So it you, needs to be watched. You read my script this morning, Lawrence Summers, who will be with you at Brookings, and we're thrilled that Larry Summers joined us uh, last week. Um, has a very nuanced op-ed piece in the FT today. I'm sure off the Brookings seminar work that you're going to do about gaming the system, and that the plutocracy can game infrastructure development that the professor would suggest does not benefit all. Discuss that. How can the plutocrats game infrastructure at our disadvantage? Well, you know, we have a long history of this in the U.S., right? The, the musical Hamilton is, is raging on, on Broadway. And, in fact, Alexander Hamilton was intimately involved in one of the great infrastructure uh, cons in U.S. history. Um, you know, it's the, actually, the person who came up with the scheme was his eventual archenemy, Aaron Burr, who would finally shoot ha- Hamilton on the shores of the Hudson. But before Burr shoots ha- Hamilton, he hires him to be his lawyer. And they come up with a scheme to have a water company in New York because New York thought it needed a water company. And Hamilton convinces the New York City Council that, you know, building their public infrastructure would involve burdensome taxes. That's a direct quote that that the city shouldn't pay for. So consequently, they should have a private company that delivers the water. Um, so, but the private company needs a subsidy, of course, and the subsidy is that it can run a bank. And, you know, bank is, uh, banking is, is close to a monopoly in New York at the time. So Aaron Burr gets his uh, bank-come-water company. And, of course, it does exactly what you think it would do. It would do a lot of banking and, and basically no water provision. And, of course, this is still with us today because the Bank of the Manhattan Water Company uh, became Chase Manhattan Bank, became J.P. Morgan Chase, and it never did much to deliver water. So we have a long history of, of trying to design public-private partnerships to deliver infrastructure which don't really end up delivering the infrastructure. We note when the, the employment report comes out, the deficit in productivity. Can you draw a line between infrastructure spending and, and productivity in this country? Uh, people claim that you can, but it's very, very hard. And again, I think focusing on the macro side of it is a mistake. You really want to focus on the, the hours and the, the, the waste that's involved in, in the direct infrastructure rather than trying to focus on the macro, the macro bottom line. What do the politicians focus on? <laughs> Making America great again, right? <laughs> yeah, but come on, Tip O'Neill, Tip O'Neill made Boston great again. My experience, Ed, I personally experienced the miracle of the interstate highway system. And there were a lot of other big projects that this nation did. Sometimes we seem to almost get it right, don't we? We do. We do. Um, and the interstate, you know, the, the returns to those early highway investments were, were quite high. I think the usual view is that the returns to secondary highway investments have gotten lower. Um, the Erie Canal was spectacular, of course, largely user fee funded, uh, uh, although the government did have to, have to lend initially. And I think going forward, it's likely that the biggest infrastructure wins are going to be in areas with new technology, maybe something around autonomous vehicles, for example, rather than just building out the current system, although the returns to maintaining the current system remain extremely high. Do we have a a problem here because our sense of infrastructure is outdated? Uh, We talk about infrastructure, we think about roads and airports and bridges, but uh, in this 2017, it really has a lot to do with fiber optic cables and and, uh, Internet connectivity, things like that. Uh, that's that's surely correct, and that's surely where the higher return things are likely to be. But again, once you get the higher the technology, the the more wary we are of thinking that this should be done with federal spending, right, rather than with private dollars. Okay, but help me here. I I believe, and you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong. We need a tunnel under the Hudson River. Everybody agrees we need another tunnel. Except Governor Christie. Uh, Whatever. (laughs) But we need a tunnel under the uh, Hudson River. How does Ed Glazier believe we should finance a gazillion-dollar project? Well, ideally, a tunnel under the under the Hudson River should be paid for by some combination of user fees, i.e., tunnel tunnel payments, and perhaps property tax revenues from people who actually use the tunnel. I mean, there's no reason why taxpayers in Montana should pay for that. Should John Tucker pay for it in New Jersey? <laughs> well, if uh, if he's going to use it, sure. Uh, if his property values are going to increase from it, sure. Uh, uh, but 
you know, uh, it's the, the, the principle of sort of everybody paying for everybody else's infrastructure doesn't make a lot of sense. Ed, Tom talked about getting it right. And when you look at the history, how long does it take after a big a spending project to assess accurately as best we can whether or not it in fact worked, whether or not it's had the kind of uh, positive economic effects we'd hope for? It depends a lot on, on whether or not the, the infrastructure is really being done just for the users, in which case it's quite easy to assess. We look at how many people take it, I and mean, it was pretty clear that the Detroit, right. Detroit people over monorail had failed pretty quickly, or whether or not we're hoping for larger economic effects, in which case it becomes you know, harder and longer. Okay. We're still not sure whether or not, the, you know, whether or not the big dig covered its costs in some sort of large-scale way at all, I mean, 15 years later. Okay, help me here with the political reality of the president-elect. He's got to throw infrastructure to West Virginia. How do we, how do we protect all, including West Virginia, uh, of Robert Byrd's road to nowhere? I mean, how do, we, how do we protect what is clearly a balance where the senator from West Virginia says we need our fair share? Well, that's a big problem, right? As soon as anything that you know, you know, goes through the Senate ends up in roads in West Virginia, roads in Montana, right? I mean, we have, you know, much more stimulus spending per capita in low density parts of the U.S. than in high density parts of the U.S. Um, there's also a, a big problem in the sense that we don't actually need infrastructure in the parts of the country that are uh, that are declining. They're places that have, you know, typically an abundance of infrastructure relative to the level of demand. We need infrastructure in places that are growing. So any attempt to sort of target the infrastructure to combat economic decline is likely to be highly counterproductive. Okay, Ed Glazier, thank you, thank you, thank you. From Harvard today, of course, with an important appearance at Brookings. This is uh, David, part of the Appalachian Development Highway System. From London, David Gura and Tom Keene. This is a joy, and it is particularly well-timed with a terrific essay today in the Daily Telegraph here in London by one R. Boodle. He is out of Oxford. He founded Capital Economics. Their first year out of the box, they won a big fancy economic prize in London. But it's a very strong telegraph today. Ambrose Evans Pritchard writing about higher inflation in Germany, and you do a exceptionally important essay on pound sterling. And in it, you use a word that only someone from Oxford could come up with, saying that we're slightly bonkers. I immediately went to the Oxford English Dictionary. OED bonkers, 1948, from the English Navy, the British Navy, light in the head, slightly drunk. Who is light in the head and slightly drunk when it comes to sterling analysis? Well, I was using this word, I I guess the American for it may be crackers. I'm not sure. Anyway, I was using the word in relation to the British monetary authorities, the Bank of England and the Treasury, who for the last, I don't know, 25 years have thought that it doesn't really matter the exchange rate for the pound. Uh, And I think this is fundamentally and utterly wrong. Now, don't get me uh, wrong. I think that the pound is now pretty competitive against the dollar and other currencies. Just above 120 against the dollar is pretty good. But I want it to stay at that level. And the British authorities here just don't have a policy for it at all. Is that because of distraction? Is it a a deliberate lack of, of having a policy? What explains the absence of it? Well, it's partly to do with the G7, because, as you know, we're not supposed to, any of us, have exchange rate policies. But I think it goes deeper than that. It's the history of Britain, the fact that we were in the European exchange rate mechanism, and we came out of it in 1992 on a day that was known as Black Wednesday. As they came out, in fact, we were kicked out. We failed (laughs) to hold the pound in that exchange rate mechanism. And it traumatized the British authorities. Since then, they've just reached the conclusion that this is something you just leave to the market. Roger Boodle, the chart that I show on TV, and, and you can see a TV go on the terminal from time to time, is 1992 sterling trade weighted weakness. Lehman low sterling trade weighted weakness. And we're right back there right now. It's the only country among the G7 with such soggy currency performance. What does that signal? Well, there have been some significant problems with the British economy. I think at this sort of level, we'll find the economy doing a lot better. You, you know, people point to the low level of the pound after the RM, after the Lehman's collapse, and they think, gosh, weren't things really bad then? I don't think this is right at all. That was the sort of exchange rate we needed. The problem was we didn't keep it. After those low levels, the pound went right back up there again, and that's what I think we need to defend against. 
We were speaking with Baroness Helena Kennedy a, a little while ago, uh, talking a bit about how the economy has performed since that Brexit referendum vote. And there are those who say, look, things aren't all that bad, sterling aside, I suppose. Uh, that's an indication here that uh, the concern was overblown going into that vote. What do you make of, of how the economy stands now? And is it something that you think will change rather radically when that Article 50 is finally triggered? No, I was um, among the few economists who were actively campaigning for Brexit. Yes. And I did say, and I believed, that the economy wouldn't be that badly affected. Of course, so far, it's proved exactly the case. Uh, now, it is possible that confidence will fall back next year. I'd be very surprised, though. I mean, when you see a pattern like this, uh, people of one opinion, pushing their pessimism further and further into the future as the numbers come in the other way. I think you've got to ask yourself the question, have they got it fundamentally wrong? And I think the answer is yes, they have got it fundamentally wrong. Now, uh, when we trigger Article 50, there'll then be a period of negotiation. And I think we've got to be prepared for some bad news. Some companies, including some American companies, are going to say, right, that's it, we're moving business out of the UK. Do I think there's going to be a wholesale move? No, I really don't. And when it comes comes down to it, uh, London and Britain are pretty attractive places to do business. If you contemplate the alternatives, lots of American banks saying they might move business out of London, they're not going to move it to Frankfurt and Paris. Uh, they've as good as said recently that if they move at all, they'll move it to New York rather mm. than Frankfurt and Paris. How long do you think that equilibration will take? Uh, that is, if you see some companies weighing whether or not to stay here, whatever downside that might have. Is that a process of several months, years? I guess it may take a few years, but I don't think it's going to be very serious. I think we're going to see a string of news items, but they aren't going to amount to very much. The strengths of London are absolutely enormous. I mean, would you really want to be regulated by the EU, whether you're in the financial business or any mm -hmm. other business? Surely you'd rather be regulated in, in the UK. What leadership would you like to see, Roger Poodle, from what I'm going to call British financiers, banking heads and heads of big companies, movers and shakers, the people in tuxedos at the mansion house. <laughs> what, what's your to-do list for these uh, young fellows and a few women too? Well, I guess, first of all, stop talking Britain down. Um, now, many of them have actually Lord changed... Lord Brown would agree with you, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, they, many of them have changed their tune because before the referendum vote and immediately afterwards, they were making noises to the effect that they would be moving business abroad. More recently, they've downplayed that. I have some sympathy for them. I mean, for a start, if you were in their position, wouldn't you, before the event, try to persuade yeah, the government fair. that things okay. are going to be bad in order to get some sort of handout. Uh, and equally, you know, the status quo is obviously much more comfortable than what the alternative might be. But now that we've voted to come out, and I think it's pretty clear the government's not going to row back on all that, it's about time they told it like it is. And I think they gradually are doing that. I, I look at um, the Prime Minister speaking today about social welfare policies, and I wonder, uh, you as someone who lives here, is this government able to do all that a government should do, or is Brexit something that's taking up so much attention that it's, it's uh, difficult for it to uh, proceed apace with other policies uh, that it has on its plate? Well, I think the Prime Minister's made some very good speeches, and she talks very well, and it all sounds very grand. Yeah. Uh, how much of that she's going to be able to deliver, I'm frankly mm -hmm. very sceptical. Now, that's not all about Brexit, but it is true that Brexit is pretty all-consuming, particularly since there wasn't a proper plan beforehand. Right. People well, criticise her, and yeah. they say, you know, the government's all at sixes and sevens. Well, why is this surprising? This is, you know, the most important right. thing that's happened in British economic history since, since the war. Your capital economics, I want to come back and actually talk capital economics with you. 20 seconds, give me an update here on the current account deficit, good service services and the money flowing in and out of England. Where does that stand right now? Oh, it's pretty grim. The current account deficit pushing 6% six, 6 or so of GDP. Uh, uh, that's, I think, a really big worry. I think it's partly to do with the fact that the pound has been so high. I think what we're now going to find is that's going to correct. But Britain has been a very attractive place for people to put capital. Now, that sounds good. Uh, I'd much rather it was a much more attractive place to buy goods and services from. Roger Boodle with us, writing today in The Telegraph, and of course, always writing for capital economics, certainly out of the financial uh, crisis. The advent of capital economics has been of immense benefit with their notes. We would mention don't email me or David for your copy of Capital <laughs> Economics. We protect the copyright of all of our good uh, guests. David Gurren, Tom Keene in London. Wonderful to have you with us worldwide. 
in the United Kingdom and, of course, across all of America uh, today. We start strong with Roger Boodle, who is chairman of Capital Economics. We talked earlier about his Telegraph essay today, Confusion Over the Effects of the Weak Pound. I just put that out on Twitter and can't say enough about what he's doing there, along with Ambrose Evans Pritchard and, and others. Roger Boodle, if we can look at the cap economics uh, point. I'm looking at butterflies. We've been looking at butterfly effects around the world. Edward Levens of MIT years ago on butterflies flapping in Turkey or the Philippines or Malaysia. Turkish lira is weaker and weaker with a second derivative acceleration. What does that signal? Well, I think you're bound to find in today's environment a number of countries that are very severely at risk, particularly where you've got an interplay between politics and economics. And this is exactly what you've got in Turkey. Turkey's not the only case. There are very many countries around the world where you've got, I think, a dangerous linkage between potential political instability and instability of the currency and the economy. I set you up for that answer because I knew what you'd say. Now I'm not sure what you'll say. Are there institutions that can get out in front of the instabilities of EM distribution or by definition, do we just wait, wait, wait until it unwinds? I'm not sure that there's a great deal that can be done at this juncture. And indeed, I think potentially it could get a fair bit worse in the sense that uh, if it's right, I think it is right, the dollar interest rates are going up a fair bit this year and the dollar is going to strengthen. This is going to call into question the economic policies of a lot of emerging markets around the world. Fit uh, trade dynamics into that. If you would. Uh, we in the U.S. wondering what's going to happen with regard to trade policy. Perhaps we're seeing some uh, early, getting an early sense of that with some of the tweets that the president-elect has sent out via a number of companies in, in particular. How, how real a concern is that to you, uh, a disruption to the way the U.S. trades with the world, the way that other companies are able to engage in business? I, I think it's a very serious risk. Now, I'm hoping, along with lots of other people, that we're not going to see anything remotely like a trade war uh, and that, OK, uh, President Trump's going to score a few uh, hits, as it were, in particular areas, which will no doubt bolster his popularity, but we're not going to see a wholesale resort to protectionism. I'm hoping that's the case, but you can't be sure. Meanwhile, whatever gains he manages to secure from that particular path of policies, you've got to set that against what's going to be happening to the dollar. Uh, the dollar's Strengthening, uh, that's going to be a serious problem for U.S. producers. How many chapters are in? Or how many chapters are left in the uh, the strong dollar story? Do you think? Well, look, you know, um, strong or weak currency, it's not everything. Right. But uh, this is potentially quite important. Of course, on the other side of the world, you've got something going on which is equally mm -hmm. concerning. That's to say, you've got the weakening of the renminbi, the mm -hmm. Chinese currency with some significant capital outflows. Now, this, is, I think, is potentially a, a really big concern if you play that into what Trump says his policy is going to be. If the Chinese authorities allowed the renminbi to weaken very severely, then you get some nasty rhetoric and maybe some vigorous action from President Trump. That potentially is pretty dangerous. Who does a guy like you watch in Europe if you have the frustration of saying, OK, when is Europe going to develop a rhetoric and discourse to move on is a new Europe. Is there one individual that you think has their head screwed on? And don't say Angela Merkel, because we all know that answer. But is there, is there one person we should watch more than we probably are? I can't think of anybody. Why, I knew that. <laughs> uh, you knew that I was going to say that, didn't you? I, I knew that would I'm come. afraid. I can't think of any single Oh, come on. Person. Jessel Bloomer. No, not, no one really that um, would be reasonably well known. I'm not, I don't see any encouraging signs in Europe. The economy, of course, in Europe last year, that's to say 2016, didn't do too badly by European standards, up 1.5%. Uh, but the, the underlying problems are still exactly the same. And there's no real sign, I think, of coming to grips with the big divergences. You've got, we were talking earlier on, you've got German inflation pretty high for Germany. You've got Italy, in some measures, in deflation, calling for completely opposite monetary policies. You need the Germans to relax fiscal policy. Are they going to? Well, you must be joking. They're not going to. And how about Greece? I know Tom was talking about that a bit earlier uh, on, on television. I'm just trying to go someplace warm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not warm. That's the tendency. Now there's snow. There's snow on the island. It's very cold, actually. There's elephants in the Alps. There you go. Are we any closer to a, a resolution in Greece? I don't think so, not fundamentally. Of course, the story has been, as you know, over a number of years, um, a loan comes up, the Greeks can't refinance it, then someone provides some money to roll the thing over, uh, and we keep 
carrying on. Mm. Is there any fundamental solution to, to all this, to the Greek problem? The answer is no. Occasionally there's a bit of a pickup in the economy. Uh, it doesn't get anywhere. Unemployment remains dreadfully high, about 25%. Youth unemployment, about 50%. No, the Greek position is still appalling. Mm. Roger Boodle, um, just I, a glimmer in the newspapers today is the North Sea's not worth what it was. Mm. Maybe Scotland will pipe down about leaving uh, this United uh, Kingdom. Can we do a NAFTA with Britain? I don't know what the acronym would be, but do you foresee where Britain truly looks across the Atlantic to America in a trade agreement? Is that even feasible within the sphere of capital economics? I think it is feasible, yes. Of course, it's something that a number of people on both sides of the Atlantic over recent years have talked about. The important thing is Britain, of course, couldn't do something like that inside the EU. Once it leaves the EU, it can contemplate that. I think this is exactly the sort of relationship that many British people would absolutely love. Uh, free trade, cooperation, friendship, but not trying all of us to merge into some sort of commonality, not trying to obey the same laws. There's a massive of language difference. <laughs> what were we talking about? What was the word we were doing earlier there? The bonkers. The bonkers. Bonkers. Yeah. Yes. I mean, bonkers wouldn't translate, right? Well, that's true. Uh, what was it Churchill said? Two countries or cultures divided by a common language. Um, <laughs> But you should, we're you trying should, to bridge that this week, Roger. We're failing miserably. You should try Paris. It's, it's worse. Well, Roger Boodle, thank you so much. He is the chairman of Capital Economics. And, you know, we had Jason Trenner down from Strategus Research the other day. There have been some wonderful shops, uh, David, that have come out of this financial crisis. And one of them, right from the drop of a hat, was Capital Economics. From the, I remember when the first report came out, I was like, oh, Boodle's in business. This is a good thing. A lot of others as well, not just... This has been a wonderful first day. Absolutely. Made possible by Rachel Worspan. Could not have done it without her. I second that. Our executive producer. Yes. Getting us started for an entire week in London. We'd like to thank the underground and the tube for getting our guests here today. Well, maybe tomorrow. So strike over tomorrow. Roger. Is this now, now it's on to British Airways. I think that tomorrow there's a small British Airways. Oh, strike. really? We're going nowhere. <laughs> We're stuck. The European tour continues. Well, here we are. We hope all of you uh, have a good Monday to the week. Again, we'll be here through the week and then on to Switzerland for the meetings of the World Economic Forum. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.